0: Our scripture reading today is from Genesis chapter 27. He went to his father and said, "My father." "Yes, my son," he answered. "Who is it?" Jacob said to his father, "I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing." Isaac asked his son, "How did you find it so quickly, my son?" "The Lord gave your the Lord your God gave me success," he replied. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Come near so I can touch touch you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. Jacob went close to his father Isaac, who touched him and said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him, for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau. So he proceeded to bless him. Are you really my son Esau, he asked. I am, he replied. Then he said, My son, bring me some of your game to eat so that I may give you my blessing. Jacob brought it to him, and he ate. He brought him some wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come here, my son, and kiss me. So he went to him and kissed him. When Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he blessed him and said, Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you heaven's dew and earth's richness, an abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed, and those who bless you be blessed. After Isaac finished blessing him, and Jacob had scarcely left his father's present, his brother Esau came in from hunting. He too prepared some tasty food and brought it to his father. Then he said to him, My father, please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. His father Isaac asked him, Who are you? I am your son, he answered, your firstborn Esau. Isaac trembled violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you came, and I blessed him. And indeed, he will be blessed. When Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me too, my father. Amen.
1: Amen. We are doing three things at once today. We're continuing off, uh, continuing on where we left off last week. So if you were here for the first time last week on Easter, welcome back. Second, we're continuing our journey through the book of Genesis, which is what we've been doing this spring. And finally, we're putting a new filter today on that journey through Genesis and doing all that this month starting today. Now, if you know anything about the lives of the people in Genesis, you know that, for example, that Abraham's life before this passage and Joseph's life, which we'll get to after this passage, these are all about epic characters with epic lives who do epic things. They blaze new trails. And yeah, yeah, there's some ups and downs with them. But by and large, there's a lot to like and even to emulate about them. But when you come to these people, when you come to the lives of the people in this passage of Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, uh, Esau, later on, Rachel, Leah, and Laban, the name drop a few folks will see uh, over the month. By contrast, these are the worst sorts of people. They live small, petty lives, doing small, petty things to each other who are small and petty people. And of all of them, Jacob, the central character here, he's the smallest and the pettiest of them all. He is a con artist with no character. And Jacob begs, borrows, steals his way through life. And yet, by the end, we see that God has done something amazing in and through Jacob of all people. What does this show us? I think it shows us the kind of person that the God of the Bible loves, the God of the Bible uses. So let's ask the question, see if we can get some definition here. Who does God love? Who does the God of the Bible use? Well, this passage shows us that God uses those from, number one, broken families, number two, broken cultures with broken souls who find the father's blessing God uses those from broken families broken cultures with broken souls who find the Father's blessing. Let's go here, number one, and and just ask, recap briefly, how did we get to here in Genesis? Well, uh, Genesis 1 through 11, if you were here, you saw, that's really all about the downward spiral of humanity. But what, what we see in the middle of that downward spiraling, that God comes and he promises to one day send a savior. And so in chapter 12, as you saw, there was a turning point. God came to a man named Abraham, and he said, Abraham, I'm calling you out uh, through your family, through your offspring, through your seed... All nations on Earth will be blessed. And from then on, all of Genesis, certainly really, the whole Bible is all about the, the tracing and the tracking of the seed. it 's really the story of the seed. Who's the next carrier of the messianic seed? And the seed now here has come from Abraham uh, to Isaac we saw last week, and today we see it 's come to Jacob. Jacob, uh, you may have seen from the passage, Jacob was the son of Isaac and Rebekah. He's got a twin brother named Esau. Oh, but there's a problem with the carrier of the seed. He's a mess and so is his family. Everyone, as a matter of fact, in this family is deeply broken. Let's look at the main characters to begin here. Uh, let's look at Isaac first. He's the, the patriarch of the uh, of the family. He's old and he's blind. Oh, but he's not too old and blind to be shady here. Uh, he sets this whole episode in motion by uh, at the beginning of the chapter, uh, he calls his oldest, uh, favored, most favored son, Esau, into his tent and attempts to hand the family fortune over in secret. And for all you, you boomers out there, Isaac's sort of the original J.R. Ewing, you know, from Dallas. He's, he's, you know, manipulating the whole deal. So. There you go. Uh, Take it for what that's worth. Rebecca, she's the matriarch. Rebecca favors the other son, younger son, Jacob. And she tries to swing the family's future towards her and her favorite child by conspiring to hustle her husband to swindle her own son. Then there's Esau, the older brother. If you read the rest of his life, you you find that Esau was impetuous. He's uh, he's violent, impulsive. He's bitter. He, He runs around with scandalous women. Then there's Jacob, shallow, insecure. Jacob ruins the lives of everyone and everything he comes into contact with. And so, in the middle of their brokenness, though, this passage shows us what they're all doing. And what they're doing is this. Every character here is on a quest to get or to give the one thing they think can help them rise above their brokenness and misery. And that one thing they're after, you can see from the one word that dominates the passage, it's the one word that if you don't understand it, you won't get what's going on here. It's the one word that's mentioned more than 20 times in just these, this passage alone. It's this word, the one word, it's the word Blessing blessing. These people were all after the blessing, who would get the blessing, or who they could give the blessing to. What's the blessing all about? Well, at first you may think, oh yeah, the blessing, it's like some nice, encouraging words spoken by the grandparents at Christmas. You know, they get the kids around, they get them on the lap, and tell them they've been a a good child, and they give them like a, you know, a gift card to Toys R Us. Of course, they're going out of business, so I guess that wouldn't be much of a gift card, or very meaningful, would it? No, not a blessing at all, but Then you realize, well, these people certainly don't treat these words as just nice and meaningless. They don't believe the blessing can be taken back. Later on when Esau, you see this, Esau begs his father to rescind what he's spoken to Jacob. Isaac says, can't do it. Can't happen. What's done is done. Or you may think, well, maybe it's not meaningless. It's just some superstitious thing done by these primitive people in an ancient culture. Oh, but it's neither. This is neither meaningless nor superstitious because among the many things this passage tries to get across to you is the spiritual power and force of the blessing. And I want to suggest to us all, to you today, no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, that we are all desperately in search of the same thing this family was in search of. We are all in search of the blessing. What was it? What was the blessing? Well, all through the Old Testament and certainly here in chapter 27, the blessing is three primary things. First, it's a deep spiritual discernment. Second, it's sincere personal affirmation. And third, it's consistent words and actions that help bring the blessing to pass. The blessing was someone looking deeply on the inside of you who knew you intimately, drawing out the destiny they saw in you and then speaking that back into the core of your being and then laboring with you to bring the best to pass in your life. It was like having the ultimate thing, the ultimate word spoken to you by the best coach, parent, teacher all rolled into one that you could ever have and it would mark your life for the better forever. The blessing was the gift of a lifetime and it meant everything to the one who was able to get it from the person who mattered most to them. And so when we see this year, I think we should just be honest, honest and say that far from being primitive, these, these people were actually on to something here. They're showing us what human beings look like when all pretending is stripped away, pretentiousness is stripped away, even civility goes away. And someone just acknowledges honestly and barefaced, oh, I want to be known and seen and loved and affirmed by someone who means the world to me. I want that kind of blessing. And I think at their core, this group of people isn't being primitive or even as petty as they're just being honest. Look at, look at Esau's words here, the words that ended our reading. Hear his heart cry here. It says, when Esau heard his father's words that he couldn't bless him, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me, me too, my father. Can we be that honest today? And counselors, uh, therapists, and especially, of course, pastors can tell you the, the effect that having this on people's lives means what it means to them, and the, or the soul-crushing effect that the lack of that has in people's lives, or maybe because of the ways uh, someone's words, on the other hand, maybe the words didn't bless them. They robbed them of who they were, robbed them of our, our identity. Uh, to, to turn the phrase around, sticks and stones can only break your bones, but words can always hurt you. Receiving the blessing this is showing us can shape us into the person we were made to be. Receiving the blessing, if you've ever received this, has spiritual power and transformative potential. Can you be as honest as they were? They sensed a deep internal brokenness, but we see what really caused an additional layer of brokenness is that they were going after the right thing in the wrong way. Do you see that? The right thing in the wrong way. Because they went after the blessing, good thing, but in a wrong way, it only made it worse. It only fractured their family further. Now, before we move on, let me just pause and try to apply this for a moment, especially to to parents and grandparents here. Let me just ask you for a moment. Parents, now, we're going to pause. Parents, uh, can you see the power that you have to shape your children's lives. The ability you have to, to bless to shape your, your children, maybe your grandchildren's future. Do you see the power, oh, that you have to bless the next generation? You do have it. And one of the things that Carrie and I have said to our children over the years, before, especially before they go to bed at night, it goes something like this. I'll let you into a little conversation we have. And by now, our children, of course, they, they know the answers to all these questions, but we do it anyway, and here's how it goes. Here's what I say to them. I'll ask them, why does Daddy love you? They'll say, because I'm your child. Yes. <clears throat> Did you choose to be my child? No, daddy. Then who made you, my child? You did. So is there anything you can do to make me love you? No. Is there anything you can do to make me stop loving you? No, daddy. I'll say that's right. And you are a blessing to me and to your family. Now, I don't care how old they get. Man, I got preteens now in the bed at night. You can see the effect Of those words on their soul. See, we all want that kind of blessing. We all need that kind of a blessing. And to a large degree, I think the brokenness in people's lives, this is showing us, comes because they don't get it, or because you haven't ever received this, or you look for it in your work. Right? You demand it from a boss, or from your own children, or through the bottle, or the blessing from some Facebook post, or social media post, or through that promotion, or through that deal going through. We're all looking for the blessing. Number one, Isaac and rebecca they've played politics with their children. They haven't parented them here. They've poisoned them. And yet, God still comes to them, showing us God doesn't just come, on one hand, to people in broken families, which he does, but also we're going to see here, to those in number two, God comes to those in the middle of broken cultures. So look at this. So yeah, the family was tweaked, mm yep, but in part it was because they had fallen into, you've got to catch this, they had fallen into one of the cultural traps of the day, the trap of favoring the oldest son above all the other children it was called primogeniture and it was the the ancient cultural practice of leaving the lion's share of the family fortune the leadership of the family to the firstborn son not a younger son or any of the daughters younger sons and all daughters were largely by comparison ignored The point is, this cultural practice is part of what drove this family to ruin. And you can see it through the the desperation of Jacob here. It's right here in the passage. It's fascinating. When Jacob comes in, right, he comes into his father's tent to steal the blessing from him. He's pretending to be his brother. What does he say when his father asks who it is? He lies and says, I am Esau, your firstborn. And what does Esau say, though, when Isaac asks him? Well, it's almost the same thing, but it's reversed. He says, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. Did you notice the reversal? Esau says, I'm your firstborn, Esau. Jacob says, I am Esau, your firstborn. What's The difference in Hebrew narrative, the last thing written or, or spoken communicates what's most important to the, to the speaker or to the writer. And what this is telling you is that what was most important, what was everything to Jacob, was the last thing on his lips. When he's asked to define who he is or who he wants to be, it's being the firstborn. See, this cultural practice, this mindset drove their family. And part of what drove Jacob to do what he did here, and of course, by the way, just like with polygamy as we've seen, the Bible never endorses this. It actually goes to great lengths to undercut this and to pave the way for its eventual elimination because it shows you in great detail the train wreck of the lives that were devastated by this cultural practice, not from the heart of God. What about us? Hmm? Easy to see right where they were off, where they missed it. But don't we do kind of the same thing? Ways in our culture, right? Don't we tell some people they're more valuable based on some genetic lottery they won in the culture they had nothing to do with, right? I mean, we don't value as much mm, the firstborn as ultimate anymore. We value other things. Take a look at this. This article is called The National Pastime from the New York Times by columnist David Brooks. And it talks about how people today can go shopping on websites to get, wait for it, sperm from specific sets of donors to ensure their children have advanced genetic material. Article says this, quote, At this very moment, thousands of people are surfing the web looking for genetic material. These sites take sex and turn it into shopping. They allow you to browse through page after page of donor profiles, comparing weight, noses, personality, and what one site calls tanability. Shoppers can use these sites and select much better genetic material than would be possessed by someone they could realistically lure into bed. And they can more efficiently engage in the national pastime, rigging our children's lives so they'll be turbocharged for success. There is tremendous market demand for DNA from blue-eyed, blonde-haired, six-foot-two, finely sculpted hunks who roast their own coffee. (laughs) These are the kind of guys you see jogging in the park and nothing moves. Nor is brain power neglected. In a bow that to all that's sacred in our culture, one sperm bank has one branch located between Harvard and MIT and the other next to Stanford. An ad in the Harvard Crimson offered $50,000 for an egg from a Harvard woman. A recent ad in the Chicago Maroon at the University of Chicago offered $35,000 for a Chicago egg and stipulated you must be very healthy, very intelligent, and very attractive, and most of all, very happy now. This, of course, is as sad as it is humorous, but I want to point out one thing in particular here. And then one thing I want to point out to you, you've got to see in the light of what a, a similarly wrong and evil cultural practice, in a way, did to Jacob. Because think about for a moment Jacob. Think about all the other younger brothers of his day, people not favored, not blessed, not seen, all because they're born into a system of thought that at its core simply favored someone else's genetics. Now, did you notice in the article the kind of, in particular, male DNA most desired here? Blonde hair, blue eyes. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't really fit any description of any male person of color I've ever met. Now, you could say, well, the reason they wanted that is because, you know, it's the majority of the population. The majority of people want that. But do you think that's what they're really after here? Or is it more likely, are they thinking about what they think they believe the best DNA looks like? The implicit assumption here is, of course, that white is better. Now, that's one of hundreds, if not thousands, of small slights against non-majority culture folks. I mean, imagine growing up being told, that color's you know, valuable, that's more beautiful, they're more important because of their genetics. Something over which you had no choice. People would say, well, they should just, you know, get over it and forgive. And on one hand, yeah, yeah, we should forgive people who wrong us, right? Both because God commands us to, and if we don't, the bitterness will ruin us. But when you read this text, you you see these characters in here in Genesis 27. Well, what are you rooting for here? I don't know about you, but I root for the whole system to be changed, right? I wish these boys had never grown up in a system that pitted them against each other based on their genetics, right? And pitted every other brother against each other. I mean, don't you wish here, as it's been said, Jacob and Esau would have been judged by the content of their character rather than the order in which they were born. And yes, Jacob, of course, is responsible for what he does here, right? I mean, but yet, yet there's a system that's rigged against him that prevents him from ever being somebody in the culture. I mean, what's he supposed to do? You say, well, certainly not this. And of course, you're right. You're right. He shouldn't do it. But why why does he commit these crimes against his family and community? Well, maybe he's just trying to be somebody in a family and culture that stacked the deck against him. Now, the Bible never excuses his behavior. Jacob goes through hell because of his choices. After this chapter, after what he does here, he's forced to flee his home. He never sees his mother ever again for the rest of his life. The one person who's ever loved or No, the Bible shows you he suffers for his choices and his sins. But when you when you understand what he was growing up in, doesn't that make a difference? Yeah. And when do you see, therefore, a particular group of people having the same struggle over and over again, shouldn't that tip you off that something might be wrong or ungodly or needing to be changed in the culture around you? And then what does it do to you when you see that this system not only ruined the lives of the younger brothers, but it ruined the lives of the older brothers too. People like Ishmael, oh, they were ruined. People like Reuben, Jacob's first born one day. They're all messed up because of this cultural favoritism, because Ungodly cultural practices are dehumanizing for everyone, not just at those at whom they're aimed. Right? Racism, hear me. Doesn't just dehumanize people of color. It dehumanizes white people. It makes all of us less than what we're supposed to be. Now, doesn't that make you want to see systems of thought change? Right? I mean, don't you think if we if we change these things and affected the culture, we might be able to deeply affect for the better. The way that everybody sees them, right? I mean, how much better would Jacob's life, all of the boys' lives have been, if they had not been born into something that began to tweak them, shade them, ruin them from the moment they were born? Now, put both these points together, point one, point two, families and cultures. What does sin look like, hmm? Where does change begin? Conservatives say, well, sin's personal, right? Starts in the home. Liberals say it's systemic. Sin is systemic. Change starts in culture. Which one is it? Oh, yeah. The answer is yes, it's both. This text shows us sin is both. Therefore, all need to be changed. Families and culture need to be redeemed by the grace of God. And so here is the good news in the story. Here's where the, the gospel is amazing because what this passage begins to show you again is that God sees the ones on the underside of power. God is always working behind the scenes to overturn systems that ruin people. And he comes to the ones crippled by broken families and cultures. He comes over and... And over again to who throughout the Bible? The younger son. Oh, what does that mean? Not that God doesn't love the older son. He does. But that is showing you it's a pattern. His grace and salvation and favor and blessing comes to the ones who are deemed outcasts by any culture. And that is good news. It's good news. See, as tweaked as Jacob's family and culture was, it didn't prevent God from working in his life. Jacob was from a broken family, broken culture, but this also, number three, produced in him, you've got to see this, a broken soul to go along. Let me ask you, do you know now <clears throat> what this is showing us is the greatest evidence of a broken soul? Oh, It's a life, it's a person, it's someone who dresses up as someone else, who pretends to be what they're not. Look at verse 22, <clears throat> And Jacob went close to his father Isaac. look at how personal this is. Who touched him and said, "The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau." He did not recognize him, for his hands were hairy, like those of his brother Esau. "Are you really my son Esau?" he asked. "I am," he replied. Well, this is heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. But how many times do we do this ourselves? How many times do we pretend not to be ourselves? How many times do we maybe even dress up, right, in a way in other people's clothes, pretending to be something or someone we're not in order to, to get the blessing from them? Because we think that's how. We get it. Listen, uh, but hear me. I'm not talking about a struggle you're facing to overcome that God's called you to overcome, right? Something that's called sin that God has said you've got to grow through that. No, I'm talking about pretending that your sin or struggle isn't there in the first place. Maybe you're trying to get a job and you lie on your resume. Get the blessing. Maybe you're doing what the cool kids at school do because you want to be like them, right? You start to, to talk like them, act like them because you want their blessing. Maybe you know it's wrong to sleep with that person you're not married to, but you do it because you want to feel special. You want to be you can get the blessing from them. Maybe you come to church and you keep coming because it's the thing you think you're supposed to do, but deep down the whole Jesus deal is a drag, right? But you keep coming because you want people to think you're good and get the blessing from them. See, Listen, but pretending to be what you're not, hiding your struggle will never get you what you're after. It'll never get you what you need. It'll never get you the blessing. And let me show you why this is true. Look at how sadly this whole story ends. Isaac, the father, asked Jacob, the son, three times to reveal his identity, to uh, tell him who he is. And the last time, the third time, he asks him to come in close. One commentator says, this is likely Isaac uh, looking for Jacob to pass the sniff test. If he gets close to him, he can smell maybe who he is. And so one last time, Jacob leans in close, wearing Esau's hunting clothes. He kisses his father. And now it says, when Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he blessed him and said, ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord and Isaac goes on to bless him, except in the cruelest twist of irony. Can you see the blessing? Was it really for him? It wasn't aimed at Jacob. It was aimed at someone else, at Esau. It was pronounced with Esau in mind. It was like shooting an arrow at a ghost. It couldn't land, couldn't find its target. It doesn't sink into Jacob. It doesn't change him because it wasn't for him. See, when you're only an actor... The applause can only go to your character, not to you. To you. So what do we need to break out, to break through? We must be people, this is showing us number four, who find the Father's blessing. Blessing. What Jacob does is terrible, and yet his father Isaac, seeing the whole thing play out, acknowledges this the, is the crescendo of the passage he says, indeed he indeed Jacob will be blessed that 's what Isaac says. he recognizes that god 's grace was flowing towards Jacob, no matter what. What does this show us? It shows us that at the same time that Jacob was desperate to find his earthly father 's blessing. God Almighty was determined to find Jacob and give Jacob his heavenly father's blessing because a real blessing for a real person from a real father changes everything. In the 1960s, a man by the name of Brennan Manning, maybe you know the name Brennan Manning. He wrote the Ragamuffin Gospel, among other books. Uh, He tells the story of a man named Larry Mullaney. Brennan was a teacher at a university in Ohio. And uh, one day, Larry Mullaney... Walked into Brennan's office, and Larry was, by society standards, he was considered sort of an outcast, a extremely short, extremely obese, terrible acne, bad list, bad hair, dressed poorly, and smelled bad. And he walked into Brennan Manning's office and introduces himself as an stick, because he can't say the word. Brennan asked him, what what'd you say, an stick?" But the story is really about what Larry Mulaney got for Christmas one year. When Larry went back to Providence, Rhode Island, for the Christmas break between semesters, he went to see his family, an Irish family, and it was more of the same in that old Irish family. Larry's dad was what other Irishmen called lace curtain Irish, as opposed to shanty uh, Irish, a lace curtain Irishman, even on the hottest day of summer, never came to the dining room without wearing a suit, usually a dark pinstripe one, without wearing a starched iron shirt, and without wearing a tie, lace curtain Irishmen never allowed their sideburns to grow to the top of their ears, and they always spoke in a low, controlled, subdued voice. Well, Larry Mulaney comes to the dinner table one night. He's back from college. He smells like a dead fish. And he and his father have their usual fights over, well, everything, everything. And some of you know what that's like. Several nights later, he's had enough, and Larry informs his family he's just going to go back to school the next day. Well, his father asks him, what time? Larry says, 6 a.m. So the next morning, the father and son ride the bus to the airport in silence. And they get off the bus because Larry's got to catch a second bus to get to the airport. And as they get off that first bus, standing directly across the street from the bus stop are six men, six other men, standing other, under an awning. And they all work in the same factory as Larry Mulaney's father. And they see Larry, and they begin making loud, degrading taunting gestures and remarks toward him like, oink, oink, look at that fat pig. I tell you, if that pig was my kid, I'd hide him in the basement. I'd be so embarrassed. Another one said, I wouldn't. If that slob was my kid, he'd be out the door so fast, he wouldn't know if he was on foot or horseback. Hey, kid, give us your best oink. The taunting and the bullying continued. And then something happened on the inside of Larry Mullaney's lace-curtain Irishman father. For the first time in Larry Mullaney's life, his father reached out, embraced him, kissed him on the lips. And he said, Larry, if your mother and I lived to be 200 years old, that wouldn't be long enough to thank God for the gift he gave us in you. I am so proud you're my son. Of course, it'd be hard to uh, underestimate even to describe the transformation that happened in Larry's life. He goes back to school. He began to clean himself up, took a shower. He became president of his fraternity, graduated with the highest GPA in the history of the college. And Larry Mulaney came back to Brennan Manning's office after this one day and said, tell me more about this Jesus. After six weeks of meeting, Larry said, all right, and he gave his life to Christ. Larry Mullaney went into the full-time vocational ministry. And to this day, true story, serves as a missionary in South America. Not because of six weeks spent in a pastor's office. but Because of one moment. Furious love. Authentic blessing from his father spoken into his soul. And hear me. I want you to know today, no matter who you are, where you're from, better than any earthly father or father figure, you've got someone who longs to give this to you. You've got a father in heaven who longs to speak this into you today, no matter how young, no matter how old you are. You say, how can I get that? Like this. Many years after Jacob, there was someone else who became what he was not. Jesus Christ, the, the Son of God, came to our earth, entered into our broken culture, our broken families. He became human, something he was not. He dressed himself up as us, but with a, a twist, not to earn a blessing, not to steal the blessing, but to... Give away the blessing that was rightfully his. Oh, but on the cross, he was stripped of all his clothing, all of his honor. He wore all our shame for us, Jacobs, all of us pretenders, for all of us liars and thieves. And he was treated not with the honor that he deserved as the ultimate firstborn son. Oh, but he was cast out, driven away like Jacob. And as he hung dying, he cried out for his father's approval, for his father's blessing. And he found it had vanished and he died in agony. Why did he do this? Galatians 3 has the answer. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it's written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that, what's the word? Come on. The blessing given to Abraham might come to us. What's, What's that? What's that word? Come on the blessing, so that the blessing could come to you. Oh, how do you access this? Once upon a time, a man by the name of Martin Luther wrote a letter to a friend of his. His friend had asked him, Martin, how do I get this Father's blessing? How do I experience the joy of the Father God? And Martin Luther wrote back these words. He said, learn to know Christ and Him crucified. Learn to sing to Him and say, Lord Jesus, you are my righteousness. I am your sin. You have taken upon yourself what is mine and given me what is yours. You have become what you are not so that I might become what I was not. No matter who you are, where you're from, this blessing, the Father's blessing, is for you today. You can have it. by Faith, repentance, trust in Jesus Christ.